For those of us who love this, Risa, we like writing papers. We like the journals. We like the research. We like the teaching. We love this. We deserve to be here. And if we're here, we're going to make it a better place. And so I'm so committed to helping those people see the way forward so that they can have satisfying careers. This is the Visible Voices podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about the Nocturnists. Hey there, Visible Voices listeners. I'm Emily Silverman, a doctor in San Francisco and creator and host of The Nocturnists, a medical storytelling live show and podcast where healthcare workers share stories of joy, sorrow, and self-discovery. Check us out wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listeners. Thanks for joining. And I am delighted to bring you my conversation with Dr. Kemi Dole. Kemi is a gynecologic oncologist, a health services researcher, and the CEO of her company, Katie Coach. She's also a podcaster, by the by, and I listen to every single episode. So the coaching program, what does it do? Quote, we empower high-achieving women of color faculty in academic medicine and public health to brainstorm and transform their academic life so that they can channel their ideas, passions, and skills into grant-funded work with institutional support. In other words, Kemi helps people stay in academic medicine if they want to. She also helps them find their way to belong when often many people don't feel like they belong in academic medicine. Kemi says that she has three love languages. Number one, French fries. Number two, motivational quotes. And number three, calling out BS. And quote, her love languages are in that order. French fries, motivational quotes, and calling out BS. So when we get to the conversation, I am asking about this final one, BS, her relationship to calling it out, the extent to which there has any fear with calling it out. Your love languages are French fries, motivational quotes, and calling out BS in that order. And what strikes me when I'm preparing for my conversations with guests, I do a deep dive. And for you, I didn't have to do as big of a deep dive because I listen to your podcast regularly and you often are uh, calling out BS and the name of the podcast is the visible voices and many of us realize we have a voice then we start using the voice but a lot of us don't use that voice because of fear and there's fear with calling out the BS so I'm wondering what your relationship is to fear and just calling it out and saying it because you are very clear and very direct in what you call out on the podcasts. I stopped trying to not be afraid. So my relationship to fear is that I stopped trying to get rid of it and I instead decided that I would just do it scared. There are definitely times on the podcast that I am like, "Ooh, I'm not really going to say this. I'm going to say it." <laughs> what I've now come to notice is that a lot of times the fear is equivalent to the value of what I have to say. And so I just put it next to me. I just put it in the back seat and move forward. Do you ever get in trouble? Have you ever had institutional pushback or someone elder say, you know, you really shouldn't? Or did you really, have you ever had anything like that? Not to my face. Um, my imagination would say that like, that's happening all of the time. (laughs) That's part of the fear part. Um, and with my institution, no, um, the only things that have come up is because I had 
for a period of time, I worked in the Office of Faculty Affairs and had a pretty clear school-wide role in URM faculty development. And we had to go through some conversations just to make sure that there were some clear lines through my activity there and my activity you know, in my own KD coaching world. Um, but that was really it. They've been otherwise hands-off. What you share and the coaching pearls that you provide are just beautiful. And they, I find them very relatable to me, my life, my navigating academic medicine. And what we know is what you provide is actually applicable to many people and many industries. Let's start with one of your topics, which is early career advice, the nonsense disguised as early career advice. I love that one. <laughs> For listeners that haven't heard that episode and what you're getting at, can you break it down for us? Yeah. That episode is about how I think often well-meaning um, people, faculty in academic medicine, give advice to young, upstart, junior faculty um, under the guise of trying to help them, but it's actually quite sabotaging. And I recorded it because I was just extremely tired of hearing the same story over and over and over again. And what is that story? Um, the story takes on a few flavors. One is that if you have somebody who wants to do something that's never been done before, they can't do it because it's never been done before, which is the most asinine thing that we say to people in academic medicine. Another version of it is that you can't do what you're trying to do unless you get in with people who are already doing that thing or who hold some kind of purse strings of power, which is extraordinarily defeating and often does not actually come with a ticket into those people. So once again, it's just a barrier that's not useful. The third thing is that instead of doing the thing you really want to do, you should go do this other thing first, which will somehow give you some nebulous then um, what's the word I'm looking for? It gives you like some nebulous pass, some nebulous qualification to go do, then do the work that you really came here to do, which is extreme, like faculty are extremely vulnerable to that message because we've been doing that for like 15 years, you know, um, in terms of our training, everything is do this first, then you'll get to do that. And so that's the one that really makes me mad because um, it just delays people's growth. And development. Um, and they waste a lot of early, really important energy on work they don't care about at all. Yeah. It strikes me that it leads into something you've also discussed on your podcast, this scarcity mindset. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the scarcity mindset is everywhere. And I have to say, I know I'm supposed to keep this brief, but I have to say like scarcity mindset is also like a totally co like coaching buzzword thing. So like, I'll just like acknowledge that. But what I'll say is that um, the scarcity mindset says that, you know, there there's not enough grant money. There's not enough. Uh, there are not enough publication opportunities. There's not enough time. There's not enough space. And we all basically have to be like fighting tooth and nail and fighting each other in order just to get like a, a seat at the table, you know, in order to be successful. Um, it's nonsense because, again, there's no shortage of ideas. Um, and we all want as many great ideas as possible. But it also really feeds into the larger culture, which is just overworking high achievers who are largely insecure. So it's like a perfect marriage. And it's why I call it out 
often so people can start to notice when they're behaving from that mindset. Yeah. So much of what you share resonates with me. This insecurity, one of the patterns that I appreciated early on with academic medicine and faculty is this self-fulfilling prophecy. The advice that I would be given was literally follow the path that I've taken. And it clearly didn't have Risa in mind. It just had themselves in mind because if I selected the same job at the same institution, followed the same path, then that reaffirmed their decisions to make that choice. And they had never made any other choice. Yes, that's exactly right. So people are teaching you from the experience and expertise that they have. Um, And if they have just followed the path that somebody else laid in front of them, then there's not a lot of flexibility of thought around the different possibilities. And it's also totally asinine because the rest of the world around us keeps changing. So even if I want to end up where you are, the likelihood that I can do it exactly the way that you did also falls. I mean, NIH funding ranks change, institutes, reorganize, all sorts of things happen. The payment structure of institutions changes. And so that's the other reason why I get frustrated with the kind of apprenticeship mindset in academic medicine, because it is an extraordinarily like outdated way to try to help guide people through their careers. How much is this advice in this self-fulfilling prophecy, this scarcity mindset, this go here to come back, how much is misogyny and racism and the structural institutions just keeping the status quo and the people in power keeping their power? Um, All of it. (laughs) I mean, I think all of it is a trickle down of uh, institutional culture, which by design is conservative. Like the entire point is to keep things the same. And I remind people, you know, that institutions are capitalistic endeavors. You know, we, that's the other thing that I feel like we just don't talk about, but it's obviously true. And capitalism thrives with uninformed workers. So my friends, like that is us. And so, um, yeah, it makes a lot of sense that when you are coming, trying to do something different, when you're being innovative, when you have a different perspective, the natural reaction to that in many ways, spoken and unspoken is resistance. For listeners that aren't familiar with your coaching and your coaching program, can you give us sort of the two-minute elevator pitch about what you do? My coaching programs, the mission of my company um, is to liberate the creativity, the passion, um, the intelligence of women of color faculty in academic medicine and public health, um, because I believe that's one way that we contribute to remaking the world. What we do is help people own, protect, and execute on their value. And what that means is that they move with a clear and internal foundation of what they can offer. They understand how to navigate the terrain of academic medicine or public health in a way that protects that light instead of kind of extinguishing it. And then they learn how to translate all of that internal passion and value into external work that is meaningful to them and ultimately their institution. Did you ever have a point where your light was extinguished or close to going out? Mm, lots of, <laughs> not for, not for lack of trying. Um, I had, I had times where it was dim. I had times where it was dim when, um, when it was hard for me to see when I like a point where I could be comfortable and feel like I was 
living my full potential in this field. Um, but no, nobody's ever snuffed it out. There are many people that leave academic medicine, many who have left and many who are contemplating leaving. And it seems that some of your coaches in your program are at that point and you pull them back in or you, you know, add some kindling to the fire. You can hear, um, based on the stories that some were ready to go and didn't, had lost everything in terms of esteem, confidence, belief in themselves, and you bring them back. Usually people that pursue something like a mission, a mission-driven business, it comes from personal experience. It does. I would say anywhere from a third to a half of any given coaching cohort comes in very ambivalent considering leaving. Um, I actually now consider that a good sign because the ambivalence is coming from the fact that they know that it could be better. But the 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 leaving, they're, the reason why they're thinking of leaving is because they can't see how. And so I want people who don't belong in academics because this is not actually the place that they like. They don't want to do the things we do here. They should definitely go. There's no reason to be here. There's so many other spaces. For those of us who love this, Risa, we like writing papers. We like the journals. We like the research. We like the teaching. We love this. We deserve to be here. And if we're here, we're going to make it a better place. And so I'm so committed to helping those people see the way forward so that they can have satisfying careers. I would say that I know what it's like to work really hard to put your all into something and to put your heart on the line and to have it dismissed, neglected, um, ridiculed in professional settings. And I know how deep that cuts. And I know that my own self-defense mechanism also would rise up and say, I got to get out of here, then forget this place. And so that's the place where it's come from me personally. And I've had a few of those experiences along my career. Absolutely. Um, I think I'm so passionate about like the coaching and what I say on the podcast, because I think we're still in a place where a lot of people who don't know any better to many extent lead faculty to those experiences. And that's where I get like so angry and like, I'm just clear we can make a difference. And that's why I put the things I put on the podcast and why I want it to go everywhere and why I want more people to listen to it. Because I had very well-meaning mentors and people above me essentially like lead me to the slaughter and not realize that's what they were doing. Yeah. This goes back to sort of the slow to change, vertical hierarchy, mm -hmm. steeped in tradition, mm -hmm. slow to change. This is the way we've always done it. All the phraseology mm -hmm. that keep things, the status quo. Mm -hmm. uh, do you want to name any names or name any experiences? Mm. No. Um, <laughs> I um, No, I will say though that there's, there's nothing unique about them. Really, it isn't. Um, we normalize exploitation in academic medicine. In many ways, our mentorship model is again built on an apprenticeship model, which is apprenticeship is following somebody around all the time, doing whatever they tell you to do until they deem you worthy of being able to replace them. That is the underlying model that we still have. So of course people get exploited. Of course people get abused. Um, of course people are put into situations that they can't see their way out of. 
So I just, I just really don't think any of my particular people or experiences are unique. And I don't want to take away from that by like naming a particular person when this is so rampant across the board. I had an aha moment. Daniel Ofri wrote this op-ed in the New York Times about the exploitation in medicine, academic medicine specifically, talking about that it's a sadistic system and that we are masochists. And it really opened up my eyes and was one of those aha moments. And I'm not sure why I didn't see it so clearly as after having read her article. And I think that really is the frame of a lot of what you've shared in terms of this masochism and the sadomasochistic relationship that we enter in. Yeah, I um, I think I might have a slightly different lens on it, though I think it's the same thing underneath. I don't, I would not describe myself as a masochist. I would describe myself as somebody who is used to having to struggle to succeed. That my definition of success incorporates pain. And it incorporates giving up a lot and sacrifice. And I'm in a field that valorizes that. Um, and so I I don't talk, I don't feel like myself or the faculty I coach or that I talk to enjoy pain and suffering, but they have accepted, just like I did, that this is just part and parcel of the process. And in fact, we are bread is not the right word, but we are selected for our ability to withstand that because the way that we are deemed excellent in training is by definition working past limits, having no boundaries, always willing to go the extra mile. I mean, I don't know if you're involved in medical education to what extent, but if you read these letters of recommendation, like at this point, it's hard for me to read them especially for women. Because when somebody wants to tell you this, this trainee is fan, like you need to match this trainee or you need to hire this person, what they will tell you, they will give you a litany of all the ways that that person has abandoned any sense, any sense of personal work-life balance, boundaries, anything like that. Like they will do anything to, for, they'll always go the extra mile. And so I'm just, this is where I have so much empathy from us. And that's probably why I'm like a little bit resistant to the masochism because it's like you have married people who enjoy challenge and who probably enjoy hard work and get a lot out of um, struggling and, and like that challenge, that, that feel good struggle towards something meaningful. And you've put them in an environment that seeks to exploit them. And so of course, yes, things get deeply out of balance, but my hope comes and my excitement comes because once that person turns on, once they realize, ah, okay, <laughs> I see the part of me you're tapping into and I'm not going to let you tap into that. I'm going to use that in service of what I want to do. It works. And when you take people who are willing to work hard, who are, who are not afraid of challenge and you just give them a different challenge. That's what I love doing with my clients. I'm like, let's just do a different challenge. How about your challenges? Get that paper done without ever working past five o'clock. And they're like, oh, I'm like, yes, now, now let's get into that challenge. So I don't know. That would be like just, I know it was a little long, but just slightly different take on it. And to be clear, first of all, thanks for that clarification and for that explanation. To be clear, I don't think you're a masochist. I don't consider myself a masochist, but I think that the system is sadomasochistic. And when we sign up and when we enter it and what leads to some of our successes is very sadomasochistic. And- and again, like 
getting brainwashed academic or doing what we need to do, going above and beyond. And you nicely introduced a term that I'd love for you to share with the listeners, your relationship, your definition, and how we we need to redefine boundaries. Mm. <laughs> I want people to understand that boundaries are not deprivation. Boundaries are not depriving people of what they owe, what you owe them of you. Um, boundaries are not about saying no or disconnecting. Boundaries are not about being selfish. Boundaries are not about being a bad team player. Boundaries are about having integrity. Boundaries are about having integrity to the work that you said you were going to do. If you said that you were going to come into academics because you want to teach and because you want to do research, because you want to do leadership and because you want to do clinical care, you cannot do those things without boundaries. To what extent do you think we're all traumatized and people that go into medicine have a deep history or relationship, inherited, generational, personal trauma, and how we have decided to sublimate and be really good at that. Mm -hmm. I think it, this is a silo issue. So um, I think the only reason we feel that way is because of the company we choose to keep, meaning me and you. I think that um, in that sense, yes, you find you find the people who are also mission driven, who are also willing to sacrifice, who are also in some way trying, still trying to prove their place in the world, still trying to prove that we deserve to be where we are. And I think when you take that group of people, especially people who have kind of set their sights on being where they they've been told they don't belong statistically, then yes, I think that we can talk about maybe a shared. <laughs> a shared um, wounding somewhere. However, I remind myself, I don't think that's the majority of medicine. I don't even think that's the majority of academic medicine. Because again, most of the positions are filled with paths of privilege. Go a little deeper with that. Explain. I would not invoke a shared history of trauma um, across all of us in academic medicine because I have had too many experiences and been in conversations and chatted with people um, who, you know, essentially this was a default path for them. There, there, there wasn't anything in the way. That doesn't mean that they did not put effort into getting here, but there was not anything in the way. This was the most likely place for them to end up. And I don't know that they have a shared sense of trauma about that. I think it's important for us to remember that there are different experiences and that's sometimes what breeds different pieces of advice. For example, you shouldn't really focus on the money. Nobody, you're not here for the money. We're here for the work. And yet we know that the academic workforce largely comes from the top, you know, one to 10% at the most of socioeconomic classes. So you know, I remember the moment of realizing that I was like in class with heirs of dynasties. You know what I mean? Like I I was I was in medical school, you know, and I was like, you know, drinking or like eating food from brands with the same name as somebody I am sitting in class with. Okay. So so um and you know that's an extreme example, but it it it's it's actually really common. And I I have to say this is that I worry sometimes about people taking especially money advice 
um, from people for whom their academic salary is not their only source of support. You don't have to worry about how much you're paid if you don't have to buy your own house. Um, so I think that's what I'm trying to get at is that I think we do cluster sometimes and I don't want us to forget that there are different experiences that lead people here. Thank you. Little pivot. Amelia Bedelia and Amelia Bedelia moments. <laughs> uh, oh, poor Amelia Bedelia. I've had many Amelia Bedelia moments. Um, Amelia Bedelia is a beloved character of children's books who is very literal. And what happens with Amelia Bedelia is that she goes, and it's usually, it's a very interesting study in class, actually, if you go back and read these books, but she, you know, she's a maid that works for wealthy people and they tell her to do things and she does them literally. And she usually messes them up because there are multiple meanings to different words. And I think that I, I have definitely had Amelia Bedelia moments. So people in academics will say things like, oh, you should go connect with that person about your work. So I interpreted that, for example, of like, oh, I should reach out and meet with that person and go talk to them about what I do and ask them for advice. And then I did that and had a horrible experience where basically I was just like excoriated by this person. Um, clearly, I was unprepared for the meeting. Um, this person had like no interest in helping me. And ultimately, you know, was a little bit, I won't like say idea theft, but I will say like interesting things showed up later. And I remember going back to the person who recommended, I'm like, you know, I, I ended up meeting with them. And they were like, whoa, you did? I said, didn't, isn't that what you told me to do? Didn't you just, didn't you tell me to go connect with them about my work? And they were literally like, yeah, I didn't mean it that way. What did you mean it by? Well, I just meant that you should kind of be aware that they also do work in this space. What? That's not what you said. So this happens a lot to those of us who are new to this arena, where people will th just say these throwaway things or give you throwaway advice, and you don't know what they actually mean by that. And you will unfortunately follow it. And, and I it results in traumatic experiences, just like Amelia Bedelia, because you don't understand the code. You don't understand what's underneath all of that. And so that's that's why I sometimes invoke her in my in my podcast. I'd love you to say more. Do you have another Amelia Bedelia moment example you mm. can share? Let me think about another Amelia Bedelia moment. Um, oh, <laughs> okay. Um, this is probably relatable to like women across the globe. Um. When we get told, well, you should go, you should go ask for that. <laughs> so, uh, well, why don't you, why don't you just go ask them to, you know, for example, um, have your right surgery tray for your surgeries or whatever. Oh, oh, you just ask this person and they'll, they'll get you all set up. So then like I go and I ask, because to me, that sounds like you should go say, hi, I would like this, this, and that. Can you do that? That to me sounds like a question. And then you get reported for being rude and aggressive. And it's like, but I thought you told me that I should go ask. It's like, oh, well, I didn't mean like actually ask. I mean, like, you know, you got to kind of let them know that you kind of want this, but it's okay if they don't do it, but it would be great if. So that's a, this is a perfect example. When people say you should go ask, but what they mean is you should say it would be great if. That's not a question. So I think that's how it shows up too, is um, languaging 
Um, and I guess I would say the last thing is that like sometimes our Amelia Bedelia moments don't actually come from, they don't come from somebody telling you to do something that like sounds one way, but really is another. They come from the fact that they forgot you're not a certain kind of person who gets to do that. So that's another place. Like, you know, oh, if you want to do well in this rotation, for example, I remember this one. If you want to do well in this rotation, just, you know, chat with so-and-so attending about music. They'll love it. All right. <laughs> and then you go into chat about music and you're hearing all these, like, I don't know anything about classic rock. That is not my background. Don't ask me about the Beatles. I can't talk to you about any of this. So it turns out that's like an Amelia Bedelia moment. Because when you say music, you mean white music. So I actually have nothing to say in this conversation. When you say, oh, if you just like, he he gathers people at his house to like hang out. If you just go there, you'll be in good with this attending or you'll be in good with this research group. And you don't realize all the cultural context that goes into that. And I can't just go hang out at the house or hang out at the happy hour and be go in good with the group because we have nothing in common. So that's like, a, that's another way it shows up of like mentors and people giving that advice advice, excuse me, not understanding that what they're really recommending is like the privilege of belonging. And some of us don't have that. Amazingly illustrative. And I wanted to use the word illustrative right there, Dr. Dole. Your voice. When did you realize you had a voice and when did you start using your voice in this way? You know, I think I'm still figuring it out. <laughs> Truly, I'm still realizing it. Um, I remember I was having a conversation with one of my best friends I've known since I was a teenager. And it was before I started my business, so probably five, six years ago now, maybe more. And we were talking about fathers and both of us have like various different father issues. And, um, you know, I was talking about how I felt like I had a, like a lot of surrogate father voices in my head, you know, like men that I've looked up to that I read about and things like that. And so she asked me like, well, what do you think? you know, what do you think he would say to you? This, like these like surrogate fathers, surrogate father figure. What would you think? Like, what advice would you think would he would give you? And without any hesitation, what came out was you have a voice, use it. And it was like a chill. It was like chills. Um, That was the beginning of me feeling like, okay, I'm going to deliberately use my voice. I knew before my voice was powerful in the blunders you know, everybody is saying something, then I say it and it's like, it's a big deal. Things like that. Like you have these moments. I knew it before because of how much it was suppressed, right? You you have these moments where you start to realize everybody's in a group, everybody's complaining, but they nominate you <laughs> to go and like actually lodge the complaint. Think those, those kind of moments happen, but they're so interspersed with the opposite, right? They're so interspersed with thinking that you're showing up like everybody else and being told you're too loud. You're talking too much. You were too aggressive. You're too all this stuff. It was that moment that I realized, no, I'm going to, I'm going to specifically pick this voice up and use it to go do something. And it was a couple years later that I started the coaching business. Your legacy. Ultimately, everything I do is to remind people who've been forgotten who they are. I think that at the heart of all, everything I talk about, my messages, the, what's in the coaching programs, the tools, the skills, everything, it is a long process of remembering who you are, what you're capable of, and what you came here to do. And 
I think that is my legacy. The Risa Wrap-Up. Special thanks to Kemi for making time to sit with me and record. Kemi, thanks for sharing your brain, your heart, your gut, your experience, all of it. Listeners, three things I've learned. Number one, boundaries. Kemi talks a lot about boundaries and convincingly she shares and explains why boundaries are not just kind to yourself, boundaries are kind to other people. Number two, your candle, that flame, extinguishing, being snuffed out. If you want to be in academic medicine and you want to belong, there are ways. Sometimes you need to find those ways. And those ways mean probably not following the, well, this is the way we've always done it. And finally, number three, coaching and the role of coaching. Coaching can take all sorts of forms. Yes, you can pay a lot of money for a coach, but you know what? You can get coaching from your friends. You can get coaching from your mentors. You can get coaching by listening to podcasts. And with that, listeners, I hope you listen to a lot of podcasts. That's it for this week. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. Our production team includes Stacey Gitlin, Dr. Giuliano DePorto, and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media at Risa E. Lewis and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.